It was a hot July day in the provincial park of New River Beach in New Brunswick. Liz and I were making the most of our time away by planting ourselves in lawn chairs, which were in turn planted on the shore of the Atlantic Ocean. New River Beach is one of those wonderful pieces of God's creation, a place where the Bay of Fundy uh, recedes with such force, it's almost as if someone had pulled the, the plug out of a bathtub, revealing a great expanse of packed sand, perfect for walking, for collecting sea glass, for tossing a frisbee. So we were sitting there enjoying our time, soaking in the sounds and the sights, the smells of the ocean, the birds, people watching, when something stirred. It wasn't obvious to us what was going on, but there seemed to have been some signs that the locals were picking up on because a few at first got up and started making their way toward the distant waves, and then it was more than a few just a few dozen, and then all sorts of people, probably across that whole beach, it would have been hundreds of people were sprinting toward the ocean. As near as I could tell, they were making their way to England. (laughs) What's going on? What's happening? Do you have any idea? Well, the tide had turned. The tide had turned, and with the force at which it had gone out, it was now coming in. And the waves were crashing over the sun-soaked sand, creating a beautiful, warm place to swim, and big breakers to surf and to jump in. The tide had turned. Well, we live on the coast. We know a little bit about a turning tide. We know the tide has turned when all the lobster boats that are moored in the harbor turn around. And the tourists ask us, how do we get them to all point in the same direction? (laughs) The turning tide is a powerful force of nature. It's also a powerful metaphor for change. The tide has turned. Usually that change is a hope for the better. And that is our hope in this new year, amen? A hope for the better. Last year we didn't even bother to put together a Vision Sunday. Perhaps today is an indication that the tide has or that the tide soon will turn. Let's pray. Our Father, we are incredibly grateful to you. We live lives where we think we need so many things and we praise you that sometimes those lives are changed in such a way that we find out what we really need and we find out that you are more than enough, completely sufficient to meet our needs and be what we need in all times. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your faithfulness to this fellowship. And God, as we look forward to a new year, we anticipate your faithfulness then. Help us to walk in the good works that you have prepared for us. 
We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is Vision Sunday. Vision Sunday, for those of you who haven't experienced it, is the Sunday where I do my best to lay out for you what we think we might accomplish in an upcoming year. Um, In other words, it's a day when we would share our plans. Well, what the heck is a plan in the last 23 months, right? What good is even a plan? We've learned a lot about plans, haven't we? We've learned that we can make them, but we can't always guarantee that they're going to come to pass. We can have great ideas of what we want to see, but we have to hold loosely to those things as God does what God is going to do in our lives. It's been difficult to plan since 2020, and it remains difficult to plan. So what I thought I would do today, rather than share with you what we hope to do in a new year specifically, and we do have hopes and plans, but I want to talk more about something that is less dependent upon the circumstances. And that is not what we want to do as a church, but how we intend to be. What we want to do is going to be subject to the circumstance and the situation, but how we want to be, well, that's grounded in something much greater. That's the Word of God. So this morning I want to talk with you a little bit about what kind of church we are, what kind of church we intend to be as we move ahead together. I want to share with you briefly seven seven facets of the church that I think we want to be. Uh, If I were to ask you this morning, what is the church, or what is the purpose of the church, I bet you would answer in multiple different ways, and they they wouldn't all be wrong answers. There are many, many right answers in there. But this morning, I want to reduce it down to maybe a, a really low common denominator, that we can all be on the same page, because actually, whatever we plan to do, or however we want to be, is hinges on the idea that we have a shared vision of what the church is. We have to have what theologians call a proper ecclesiology. We have to have the right theology of the church. We have to have the the right understanding of the church. David Paulison put it this way. He said, a wrong theory distorts everything. And he's right. So we need to have the right theory, the right theology of the church. What is the church? What is the purpose of the church? This morning, I want us to understand it simply this way. The church is the display of God's glory. The church is the display of God's glory. We read this in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. Ephesians 3.10 tells us that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known. The manifold wisdom of God, the variegated wisdom of God, the diverse wisdom, the multi-angled wisdom of God is made known through the church. The church is God's idea. The church is God's creation. And it exists to make Him known. That's what we're here for. And that should lead us at least to one question, which is, how do we do that? If we are here to display His glory, how do we do that? And that's where these seven ideas come in. I think there are seven ways. There are more, but I'm just going to share seven where a body of believers can put and keep the glory of God on display. First, God is glorified in a church when the Bible is central. When the Bible is central. 
The Word of God, as the psalmist tells us, is a, is a light unto our path. It's a lamp to our feet. The Bible is God's revelation of Himself to us. It is His commentary on humanity. It is His Word about our condition. It is His instruction for how we can live by divine design. Justin rightly pointed out last week in his message that the sort of resiliency that we need for the times that we're facing in order to fulfill our purpose as the church is not going to be achieved by having a Bible on the shelf. We need the Word of God in us so that the Word of God can come out of us. Right? We need that Word in us so that in the decisions and the choices we make, the Word of God is coming out of us and God is glorified. You realize it has never been God's sole goal that we would have knowledge of or understand His Word. That's not His primary goal. Do you understand that the distinction of knowing the Word of God is shared with the devil? who quotes Scripture to Jesus, remember when he was tempted, and the demons, according to the book of James. So God isn't saying, well, what, you're going to be all set if you just know my word. No, there's more to it. What does he want us to do with that word? He wants us to obey that word. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. The God-glorifying church is one that holds firm to the trustworthy Word of God, the truth of Scripture, always, even if, and perhaps we might say especially when, others don't. We hold to the Bible as the Word of God which is to be followed. And we don't do that as some sort of badge of honor, right? Like, we don't do that That's just a recipe for pride. And it's so easy to creep in and go, you know what, look at this, we're the only true believers. We're the only ones that are serious about the Bible. No, we don't do that as a badge of honor. We hold to the Bible as the Word of God to be obeyed humbly as a witness to our faith. We actually believe the Bible is true. We actually believe it, and we're going to live with it, and we're going to live for it, and we are going to stick to our guns around it, even when, and especially if, others do not. As Christians, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to love Jesus. We defer in obedience to what God says is right, what God says is best, even if we want something different for ourselves. It was a particularly tense point in Jesus' earthly ministry. We read about it in John chapter 6. This was a time when Jesus was saying, if you're not familiar with the passage, that people would have to eat his body and drink his blood. So these were some hard sayings that Jesus was talking about. And after he got done with some of that preaching, the scripture, John 6, 66, it tells us that many just walked away. They just did, they stopped following him. And so he said to his own disciples, to the twelve, are you going to leave too? Are you going to walk away? Do you remember what Peter said to him? 
Lord, to whom would we go? Where would we go? There's nobody like you, Jesus. To whom would we go? You have the words of life. That's what he said. To to abandon the words of life is what a lot of people are doing. And it's not something that we're willing to do. It's not something that we are going to do. To abandon Jesus is to abandon the words of life. Or another way to put that, maybe brings it to Ruth a little bit closer, to abandon Jesus, to abandon the words of life, is to assert that we have a better way. Now, I've been guilty of this before the Lord, and I bet you have too. Well, we know what the Scripture says, but we want to do something different. We have a better way. We have a different, a different approach. Or God, we want an exception. You know what the proverb says about that? There is a way that seems right to a man. The end thereof is death. Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters, if you choose a way apart from the way of Christ. You are choosing a path of death. That's what the Bible says, and we hold to the Bible. We are warned in the last times that people will not endure sound doctrine. Does that surprise you now? Perhaps you read that 40 or 50 years ago, some of you, and you couldn't conceive of such a day when people wouldn't endure sound doctrine. But we are in that day today. And the Bible warns us about that. People will not endure sound doctrine, which is a nice way of saying healthy or right teaching. That's all that means. And the church isn't going to be spared from this. So we have to be on guard for it. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us that there's going to be a group with itching ears who will heap unto themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear, which is going to be different from the Scripture. The church that puts God's glory on display is going to be the church that holds fast to His Word, both in proclamation and in practice, expecting its members to do the same because the Bible is not negotiable. And God's Word must be central. A second characteristic of a church that displays God's glory is that worship is essential. Worship is essential. I do have a little bit of compassion for you this morning. Some of you are actually taking notes on your lap. And I ordered 90 small clipboards for next week. How's that for timing? Also, anybody who's having trouble hearing, because acoustics we know aren't great in the gym, we have a bunch of listening assistive devices. But apparently there's a supply chain problem. They're on their way as well. Hopefully we get better as we go. Worship is essential in the church that's going to put God's glory on display. And when I say worship, I'm talking about the corporate gathering of God's people together to praise Him and exalt Him and celebrate the Gospel. John Calvin was exactly right when he spoke of the necessity of corporate worship for the Christian. He says, believers have no greater help than public worship. For by it, God raises His own folk upward step by step. 
We have no greater help than public worship. This is the means by which God raises us up step by step. Now we understand that there's been a pandemic here. A lot of people are out of the habit of coming to worship, and understandably so. We get it. But prayerfully, as we move into this new year, if this tide will turn, that's going to change. Because we were made to worship. And we were made by God to worship together. And Hebrews 10.25 tells us that we must not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We have to come together to worship. The option to view a worship service at home has been good, but I think we will all agree it is not optimal. Worship should be incarnational. And it's also subject to many challenges, technically, (laughs) which we have painfully experienced because we want to push this service out and time after time there are technical things that get in the way. And then there's another danger to virtual worship, right? And that is that it might, in some people's minds, mold them to believe that worship is an individual experience. And that it's really just my spiritual shot in the arm. It's the thing that I need to get through the week. Well, prayerfully, it is helpful for you, but it's not just about you. And we've learned that as we read Hebrews chapter 10. Worship is about God first. And worship is about others. And we draw near, it says, to encourage others all the more as you see the day drawing near. So let me just ask you, do you see things getting better? No! So what does the Bible say? Get together. Get together so you stay strong. So you stay faithful. So you endure. So you persevere. So you make it to the end. So you don't slide back. You've got to get together. That's what the Bible's telling us. Worship in the church that wants to display God's glory. Worship is not just a nice to have. It's a need to have. And it's full of people who know, I need this. And I am not embarrassed about that. I am not ashamed about that. I need this. That's how the Bible says we are. That's how God made you. If you feel that way, it makes perfect sense. We want to be a church where worship is essential. Number three, the display of God's glory happens through a church where membership is meaningful. Where membership is meaningful. When a church like ours receives a member, What we are doing is we are affirming that person's profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and that person's intention to follow Jesus. That's what we do when we bring a member in. We believe what that person is telling us. And we assume a level of responsibility. A unique responsibility. Again, the book of Hebrews talks about that as far as leaders. We have care then over people's souls. That's what it means to to come into a fellowship is subject oneself to, to the care of the church over your soul. So we have a commitment to all the members and the members make a commitment as they come. And I am sure if you're a member of the United Baptist Church, you can recite for me the seven requirements, seven, seems like a perfect number, doesn't it? The seven requirements for membership, right? Those would include 
I'll fill them in for you. Okay. Seven expectations. Three of them, actually, you're going to be like, well, yeah, because that's the disciple-making process at United Baptist Church. Worship, fellowship, and service. Okay, so yeah, okay. I give you three. To worship with others, to fellowship with others, to serve as needed, to support the church financially, to pray for the fellowship regularly, to grow spiritually, and to advance the church's mission and vision. That's what it means to be a member of United Baptist Church. There's more to it, but that's the basics. At a base level, that's what it looks like to be a member of our church. And membership matters. I suspect you are a member of several organizations where your attendance may or may not be needed. And you may or may not feel like you ought to be part that way, but not in church. Membership matters. Mark Dever has said of church membership, it's how the world knows who represents Jesus. And he goes on to write, church membership is our opportunity to grasp hold of each other in responsibility and love. By identifying ourselves with a particular church, we let the pastors and other members of that local church know that we intend to be committed in attendance, giving prayer and service. We allow fellow believers to have great expectations of us in these areas, and we make it known that we are the responsibility of this local church. We assure the church of our commitment to Christ in serving with them, and we call for their commitment to serve and encourage as well. Membership matters. Membership is meaningful. I just spoke with a friend, a colleague in ministry, a few weeks ago. He's got a small church on the coast, the mid-coast of New England, and he's got over 200 members on the roll. I frankly don't know if there are 200 members in his town. A lot of New England churches are the same way. They just have this role that it continues to be member after member after member. And if you're there, you're there. And if you're not, you're not. And a lot of us pastors have in the past gotten in trouble when we try to clear up those roles. But that doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do. Because church membership is not about affiliation. It's not. This isn't the Oaks Club. This isn't the Golf Club. This is a church of the living God. If you're going to be part of the church of a living God, there are expectations that go with it. And there's no apologizing for those. It comes through in the Word of God. Membership is more than affiliation. The church that displays God's glory holds its members to account to live up to and to live into the commitments they make when they were received into fellowship. A fourth characteristic of the church that honors God has to do with how and where it ministers. It's going to be a church where ministry is intentional. Intentional, deliberate, done on purpose. Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16 tell us, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time. You remember why Paul said that? Because the days are evil. The psalmist says, teach us, O Lord, to number our days. Help us, God, to make the most out of this life that you have given to us. John Piper wrote a book, Don't Waste Your Life. It goes fast, doesn't it? And there's a small window, really, relatively speaking, to do things that are eternally significant for us as individuals and for us as a church. Therefore, ministry must be 
done on purpose with a purpose. According to purpose, it must be intentional. Time is fleeting. We want to make the most of it. Many times over the years, I've said there's tons of good things that we can do, but we always have to be looking for the best things, the things that God has uniquely equipped our body to do because of our talents and our treasures and our location and our passions and things like that. And that is how God works, you know. He uniquely equips His church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He brings us together. We're not here by accident. He brings us together because of how and who we are to do what He wants us to do. Jesus is the head of the church, amen? And He's building it and we're part of that church. We're part of that body. Therefore, we don't want to waste any time doing things that aren't consequential. We don't want to do the things that don't matter. We want to evaluate ourselves regularly and say, is this who we are and what we're supposed to be doing? The ministry of the church should, be, should represent the current us. Not something that happened 10 or 20 or 50 years ago, right? That's why they say the, 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 the seven, seven again? The seven last words of the dying church, we've never done it that way before, right? And sometimes that's the answer to, why do we do what we do? And sometimes the answer is, well, because it's what we've always done. But that's not quite good enough to live up to the scriptural standard, is it? A better answer is because God has called us and equipped us to fulfill His will for us in these specific areas. So this is the United Baptist Church. The United Baptist Church isn't going to do what the Emmanuel Baptist Church is doing. Isn't going to do what faith community is doing necessarily. These are all different bodies. And God calls us to minister, and we want to minister in an intentional way. A fifth characteristic of the fellowship that displays God's glory is that service is not optional. Serving in the church is not optional. One of the metaphors that Scripture uses for Christians is that of a soldier. Right? Paul tells us, no soldier in active service is going to entangle himself in the affairs of civilian life. In other words, you've got a job to do. You're a soldier. I love that. Also, one of my favorite songs growing up, Onward Christian Soldiers. It was like one of the only fast ones in the hymnal. I didn't like it for the theology. Onward Christian Soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. It's a great visual. We're soldiers in the army of God. But the problem is, as near as I can say, for the last couple of years, we've acted or felt more like reservists. Right? We're part of the army, but what's the army doing? Stand down. We're going to wait. There's a bug in the air. We're reservists. Okay. Let's hope the tide turns. Because there's work to be done. And admittedly, The things that we were so used to doing as a body, where people could easily plug it, all that changed. But in this new year, we're going to be looking for those ways to plug you in to serve. Because you were made by God to serve Him. And the church that puts His glory on display is full of people who are serving. You do realize that we're not going to do much if you don't report for duty. You do know that as an army, we are not probably going to take back the enemy's 
territory, the stuff that he's taken from us, if 20% of our army is doing 80% of the work, which is the old standard they used to say of churches. I don't think so much of ours, but many. 20% of the, a small portion does most of We need everybody. We need every soldier. We need everybody at every level. And service isn't optional. We, re- we actually believe that you grow closer to Jesus and become more of the Christian that He wants you to be when you are plugged into working for His kingdom. Amen? When you, how easy is it for us to build our own kingdoms? How easy is it for us to get so focused on our own stuff? You know that's not going to last. How many times does the Scripture warn us about those things? Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy. This is just a moment. Have you read the book of Ecclesiastes? It's all vanity. What matters? What is done for Jesus Christ. And, And so the church that displays God's glory is full of servants. And where do we get this idea of servanthood anyway? <laughs> We've got this wonderful Savior who said, I did not come into this world to be served, but to serve. We've got this beautiful God who washed the feet of his disciples. And they were reluctant, but he said, no, this is what I'm doing. And what did he say afterwards? Follow my example. Do to others as as I have done to you. So service is huge. Service is important. And if you're not plugged in to a ministry or you've had some sort of difficulty getting plugged into a ministry, let's talk about it and let's let's put you to work somehow, some way. And did I mention that we need to tear this down at the end of the... uh... (laughs) Six church that displays God's glory is going to be a church where giving is exceptional. Where giving is exceptional. Now that might sound like a lofty goal. Oh, here we go. Now you're talking about money. Yes, I am. Yes. Because how you handle money is a reflection of your relationship to God. And that's what I'm concerned about. Because you know what? Your money's not yours. Your money is His. And how you handle it is proof of what you believe in and what you value and what you trust. Now, you might think that having a church where giving is exceptional is a stretch, but I'm telling you this. If just a quarter of any church's membership would commit themselves to a tithe, that is, giving 10% of the... If just a quarter would do that, that would put you in the exceptional category. Because the research says that basically between 10 and 24% of churches have, uh, of Christians actually tithe, actually give. So it's not asking a lot for us to be exceptional. Think about what it would look like if we were exceptional in giving, and many of you are, and thank you for that. This is historically a generous church. That's what we want to be. Imagine what we would be able to do if we were, in fact, a tithing, generous church church. Lord willing, later in the year, we're going to be, find ourselves in the book of Malachi. And in the book of Malachi, God sort of confronts his people. And in, in one place, he confronts his people for robbing him. Do you remember how they were robbing him? In tithes and offerings. And what did he do? He challenged them. 
And he, and he said, bring, bring in the tithe. Bring this in and see if I won't open the windows of heaven. See if I won't bless you abundantly. It's really the only place where you see God opening up a test of himself. Don't rob God for money. Don't do that. But it's tough to let go of some of that money, right? But we don't want to be closed-fisted people. We want to be generous people. And we want to do that as a church. Many of you do that individually, and that's wonderful. But we want to do it as a church because who gets the glory when a church is generous? God. God gets the glory. So we don't want to be closed-fisted. We want to be open-handed. We want to be able to respond to needs as they emerge. And, and we want people who are just generous in nature because you trust God to provide for you. Because you have a good biblical understanding of what it means. You're just a steward of everything. And it all comes from the Father's hands. Like I said, it's sometimes tough to part with money. If money is your sense of security, if you have your sense of, of importance wrapped up in material things, you're not the only person who's ever struggled with this, but you can overcome it. There's a story told about a little boy who, when the offering plate was passed, had been given some coins to put in it, but was reluctant to do so. And I don't know, if has anybody ever actually literally had that experience? It, it happens, just saying, it happens. So you've got this little, little child, and he's got his coins, but here comes the plate, and I don't know about that. And so his mother said, Danny, put that money in the plate. It's tainted. He tossed the money, and he looked, and he said, what do you mean, tainted? She said, it taint mine, and it taint yours. It's the Lord's. <laughs> the earth is the Lord's, and what? Most of what it contains except your bank account? No. I've I got to stop talking about money, because I know I'm going to be offensive, and I don't mean to be. But don't you think that this is one of those areas as believers where we really fall into temptation? Where we really get our priorities skewed and where it's so easy for something to become an idol. So the church that displays God's glory is full of people who are generous and who are exceptional givers. Lastly, the church that displays God's glory is the church where spiritual growth is normal. Where spiritual growth is normal. I have asked you before, you can count on me to ask you again, friend, what is the Lord doing in your life today? Not what, is, not what has He done, but what is He doing in your life today? What is He teaching you right now? If you don't know what God is teaching you right now, and I know that some of you probably don't, what song keeps popping up on the radio? Right? What theme keeps coming into your feed or your daily devotions? This is how the Lord works. He continuously pours into us to teach us and train us. And He's always working on us, and sometimes we're oblivious to it. What is he doing in your life right now? What are the themes that are emerging? Where is the cutting edge of your spirituality? What have you learned over the last couple of years? Please don't waste this opportunity. This has not been great fun, but God is so good. 
He's stripping away the stuff that doesn't matter. Getting you back in touch with the things that do. At least that's how I've experienced it. How have you changed since you made your profession of faith in Jesus? Because you know this, this beautiful news, that ever since you made that profession of faith, God has been about a work in your life. And Romans 8 talks about that work, that He is conforming us to the likeness of His Son. He's faithful to do that. That's why some of you are suffering right now, by the way. Because you're being conformed to the likeness of Jesus. You're being humbled. You're being broken and changed. And you're suffering and you're being made like Jesus. God is so good. That's the norm, right? That's the norm. God is at work in our lives. Paul talks about this journey 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The, the work of transformation. The process of becoming holy. We call it the, the work of sanctification. Of being cleaned up and made ready for use for God. That's what God is about. And that, that word to be transformed actually means to change into another form. That's what God is doing in you. As much as we may not like change, and I don't know, is there something about Baptists and change maybe? A joke to be made? I don't know. We may not like it, but biblically speaking, it's absolutely the norm. It's the thing we ought to be counting on. That it's going to be different, that we're going to be different. Spiritual growth is normal. Spiritual stagnation is not How have you changed since you came to know Jesus? And how is God changing you now to make you more like Jesus? It's normal, but it's not natural. And it's not easy. Which is why in our process of making disciples, we encourage at least one connection of fellowship outside of worship every week. Maybe a Bible study or a small group or an accountability group or a prayer group. And I know the pandemic has taken its toll on all these opportunities for us. And we've been walled off and isolated. But that has to change. Because we need it. We need that kind of fellowship in order to become the people that God wants us to be. And prayerfully, as we move into a new year, those opportunities will be there for you. And prayerfully, you will take advantage of them. It is a new year. What is your plan for spiritual growth? If you haven't made one, let me encourage you to think think about that. What is your plan for spiritual growth? If you don't have a plan, you're not going to do well. Um, because that's the way that that's the way my wife and I do diets. We have a vague notion of the right thing. But as long as we don't make a plan, we don't really have to do anything. Which is usually how it goes. And thankfully, there are only so many months where Monday is the first of the... Right? You have to start at the right time. Or it's all just shot. What 
is your plan for spiritual growth? If you fail to plan, you've planned to fail, right? Well, now you're not really planning to fail, but I'm telling you we're humans, so make a plan, please. Think about it. Or are you, how are you going to help God? <laughs> it's a funny way of putting it. But how are you going to help God in his work of making you more like his son? He's not going to cram that mold right down over you, know, and cut everything off. He's looking for some collaboration, some co-laboring. Well, let me ask it this way. What characteristic of Jesus do you want to see more of in your life? So you add up the number of years you have left and you answer that question every year and it'll take you to glory. What characteristic of Jesus do you want to see more of in your life? The fellowship that consistently puts God's glory on display then is a church where the Bible is central, worship is essential, membership is meaningful, ministry is intentional, giving is exceptional, Service is not optional, and spiritual growth is normal. And I would be way off if I didn't add this, because I'm thinking, how can I, how can I say this? The message of the gospel drives all that I just said. Like, there's not a word to capture how the gospel fits in this, because the gospel is in it all, and through it all, and over it all, that's what it means to be the church that puts God's glory on display. It is the church that not only preaches, but practices and is, has the gospel pervasive in everything it undertakes. Amen? If we don't have the gospel in there, you know we're going to turn into a bunch of legalists, or a bunch of self-righteous people. We're going to turn into a bunch of, of you know, mindless rule followers. None of this stuff is what God is calling. He's calling us to celebrate the good news. What is the good news? The good news is your sins through Christ have been forgiven. The good news is that you are a child of God. The good news is when you don't have power, God has it and has proven it. The good news is that God forgives and is merciful and will hang in there with you. The good news is that God loves you. And He is mindful of you. Every facet of the Gospel must be in all that makes a church a God-glorifying body. Amen? So, with having said that, what time is it? like 2 o'clock? Huh? Wow. Alright. Then I'm not going to go over the ministry plan with you. You have it, and you can read it. I will just say this, that we humbly present a plan to you for how we want to be, but what we want to do. And that everything that we are endeavoring to undertake, spend some time with that plan, if you would, in the days and weeks to come, everything that we are wanting to undertake, we know we need God's help. 
We, we know it. And how do we know it? Because Jesus told us in John 15, apart from me, you can do, what can we do? Nothing. So if it is to come to pass, it will be God's will that it comes to pass, and we humbly submit that ministry plan to you so you have some idea of where we think we might be going as a church. But honestly, having been sort of separated as we have been for a couple of years, I truly think it's more important that we give some thought to how we want to be how we want to be as Christians individually, and then when we come together as individual Christians, that makes us the church, and that will determine how we will be as a church. I hope you're with me in this. I, think, I, think, I feel the Lord's hand is, is moving us in a good way, and I and, uh, hope we get all hands uh, on board or all soldiers reporting or however you want to put it as we move into a new year. In your packet, you have a copy of the church covenant. Would you, would you turn and look there? Everybody got the church covenant, or most people have the church covenant in front of you? Like third page, maybe? So this is part of what we commit ourselves to, not just simply our statement of faith, but this is our covenant, this is our uh, obligation to one another and to God, which we make to one another before God. There will be no sacrifice of animals or walking through the middle of them, if you're familiar with what it means to cut a covenant in the Old Testament. We live in an era of grace. But this is still a covenant. It's still meaningful. And I want to recite this covenant together, starting with the first we, if you just look down there. Everybody at the same spot? Let's, let's, let's do our best to recite this together. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We will walk together in Christian love, exercising affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, faithfully exhorting, encouraging, and entreating one another as occasion may require, loving each other even as Christ loved us. We will speak the truth to one another in love, refraining from gossip and putting away all bitterness, anger, and injurious speech. We will be kind to one another with humility and gentleness, helping one another and forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven us. We will gather together faithfully in worship, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together or neglecting to pray for ourselves or others. We will train our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and by a pure and loving example, seek the salvation of our family and friends. We will rejoice at each other's happiness, and with tenderness and sympathy, bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, remembering that as God's children, 
saved for His glory, we have a special obligation to lead new and holy lives. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful Christian ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines and strive for its advancement in knowledge, holiness, and peace. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. We will, should we move from this place, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we stand, sit before you. We submit our wills to your will. We lay out our plans with good intentions and the full expectation that we take our direction from you. And God, we want to be a people, we want to be a church that lives to please you. We readily admit, Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. And we know this, that with you, we can do anything that you want us to. So use us, Lord. Individually, we pray, and as a body, to put and to keep your glory on display. Amen.